Their ghosts are moving tonight, restless, hungry. May I introduce myself? I'm Watson Pritchard. In just a minute, I'll show you the only really haunted house in the world. Since it was built a century ago, seven people, including my brother, have been murdered in it. Since then, I've owned the house. I've only spent one night there, and when they found me in the morning, I, I was almost dead. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. So this week we are looking at the 1959 horror film, if you could call it a truly horror film. I, I mean, smell I guess you, a debate here. Well, I mean, I guess you could say it's, I mean, it is horror, no doubt, but it, how horrific it is is up for debate, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, we're talking about House on Haunted Hill from 1959. Yeah. Often uh, it's listed as 1958, but the official release date was 59, so I don't... I don't know where that came from. I guess, I'm, I guess it was just shot in 58, and maybe the copyright's 58, but it's, it's a 1959 film. According to IMDb, uh, the director, William Castle, released Macabre in 1958. Do you, do you pronounce it Macabre or Macabre? It's Macabre, right? I would say Macabre. Macabre might be macabre. acceptable, but Macabre. In... Um, in the book, Dance Macabre by Stephen King, which was his like, uh, sort of memoir in the early 80s, uh, he mentions um, seeing that movie and his friends and him would pronounce it macabre. Because they were kids, you know. He's specifically talking about the William Castle movie? Yeah. Oh. That's kind of cool. But that's like when I was a little kid... Uh, I would be like, oh, someday I really want to watch that Bela Lugosi movie, Murders in the Rue Morgue. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> starring Bela Lugosi as Mr. Magoo. <laughs> that would, you know what? That's a, that would actually be a pretty decent casting, right? Bela Lugosi as Mr. Magoo. Oh, man. Such a missed opportunity. I don't know. But anyway, yes. <laughs> Tangent right off the bat. <laughs> House on Haunted Hill. Um, we're looking at this movie because, uh, the last couple episodes we've, we've just been, you know, it's October right now. We're getting, uh, closer to Halloween and autumn feels like it's finally starting to set in. And, uh, yeah, so we're looking at these movies that embody the feeling and the mood of the spooky Halloween time and House on Haunted Hill certainly fits the bill. Yeah. Would you say that it's a quintessential haunted house movie? Sure. I can... <laughs> uh, yes. You want me to say yes, right? I want you to say whatever you th whatever you truly think. Well, I never really thought about it, but because uh... I mean, what other yeah. haunted house movies are there? Well, there's The Haunting. It's the Haunting, yes, and there's Thirteen Ghosts, which came came later, but uh, The Uninvited. Um, I mean, there are a lot of haunted Amityville houses. Horror. I'm so, I guess I'm saying like, um, at, like the, at the time that it came out, there were there was already a uh, uh, a genre of these sort of like like the old dark house type movies. Yeah, like the old like dark the house. Old dark yeah, house. Like, yeah, exactly. And the 
cat and the canary and the cat creeps and the ghost breakers and but i guess it's interesting that this one really embodies the uh the feeling of of those movies and it feels like it's like from our vantage point in history looking back it feels like it's like the quintessential haunted house movie in a lot of ways but am i wrong in thinking that this is almost like a uh a bit of a send up or a callback to those older old dark house style movies um i don't know about a send up i mean it doesn't take itself seriously yeah that's what i guess i'm kind of getting at well i think most movies that have uh vincent price in them as a lead actor uh they can sometimes feel like a send-up even when they're not yeah because he's a bit over the top yeah a little a little campy uh not so much in this film as he would get later on but it's definitely still there and he's definitely kind of winking at us with his little asides and everything and like just stuff like (laughs) remember the fun we had when you poisoned me like just little which i mean that's not his like he didn't ad lib that or something but just like his reading of it you remember the fun we had when you poisoned me (laughs) (laughs) something you ate the doctor said yes arsenic on the rocks yeah i love those scenes with him and his wife yeah his wife was played by uh carol omar who um I always like, I haven't seen much that she's been in. She's in Spider-Baby, which I love Spider-Baby. And uh, randomly I saw an episode of um, uh, Men Into Space, like a sci-fi show from like the early 60s. She guest starred on an episode. And um, it was really good. It was like the struggle of a female astronaut in like a, in a man's world sort of thing. Um, but yeah, like I feel like she wasn't really given that many opportunities to uh, shine like she does in this film. She makes an impression for not having too many scenes. Yeah. Compared to a lot of the other characters, anyway. I'm just going to back it up a little bit here. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so we're talking about House on Haunted Hill. Where do we begin? So in this film... Uh, Vincent Price plays Frederick Lauren, an eccentric millionaire who uh, throws a party at this uh, allegedly haunted house, the house on Haunted Hill. A haunted house party, as he describes it. Yes, Uh, which I guess was his wife's idea because she's so amusing. I'm Frederick Lauren, and I've rented the house on Haunted Hill tonight so that my wife can give a party, a haunted house party. She's so amusing. And the guests he invites are people he doesn't actually know. Um, and he... Uh, it, basically, the party is just like um, this game where if, uh, if you show up and you stay the entire night, because you end up getting locked in, the, the doors automatically lock at midnight... Um, if you can stay alive until morning, you get, uh, is it $10,000? $10,000. And so each of the party guests have their own reasons for needing or wanting the $10,000. Uh, 
Um, so that's the game as the guests know it. But yeah. there's really another game at play, which is the game between Vincent Price uh, and his wife. And uh, whether or not one of them is going to kill the other, essentially. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, I mean, they, they, put, they put together this party and invited all these people as essentially, you know, pawns on a chessboard to maneuver them around to see if one of one or the other could get the other the upper hand and uh and and kill them so how much all right so vincent price's character was in charge of the invitations and one of the people that he invites is dr trent who I mean, I shouldn't have to say spoilers. We're going to talk about this movie. It's a yeah, mystery. Yeah, and, and, and if you haven't seen it, you can find this movie everywhere. Yeah. It's fair, pretty fair to say that you can find this movie everywhere. It's it's in the public domain. It's, you know, you there, can, it's, it's on YouTube. It's Several yeah. versions of it on Amazon Prime for free streaming. And then if you feel like paying for it, there's several other versions of it on Amazon Prime. Or, you know, if you find, I mean, any, like, dollar bin horror collection on dvd probably has house on Haunted hill so yeah there's no shortage of ways you can track this movie down yeah so get on that and um pause this go watch it and then just come right back okay welcome back if you've just seen house on haunted hill um all right so dr trent was like having an affair with frederick lauren's wife um when do you think Lauren found out? Or do you think it was after the invitations went out, the wife discovered, oh, this guy, I'm going to seduce this guy and get him to help kill my husband? Yeah, un- it's unclear how long yeah. this affair has been going on. Um, but it seems to me that it was a plan that they had hatched well before the party. Yeah. That Trent and... Uh, what's the, what's the wife's name? Annabelle. Annabelle, that's right. Yeah, that Trent and Annabelle they had schemed this bef- well before the party was uh, underfoot. So I'm I'm thinking that, uh, yeah, Vincent Price uh, purposely invited Trent as part of his game. You know, like okay, because as we see in the end, he was you know essentially playing them the whole time how you know if any of that makes any sort of sense logically yeah with the way that they're able to uh sort of i mean i i guess you know we could just jump right to the end here but um the plan that uh that annabelle and trent have seems like it's a pretty good plan even though it's very hard to count on a lot of things happening. Yeah, I don't know if it's... I mean, in real life, I don't think it would be a good plan. No, in movie world, it seems like, <laughs> oh, that's a pretty good plan. But then they, they, Trent goes and does something to completely undermine the whole plan. Yeah. So the whole idea that he's going... Okay, I don't know. Should we just talk right about the ending right now? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the whole premise is like, okay, it's this haunted house, and... Uh, we're starting to we we see ghosts pop up and there's the the guy the drunk who is actually technically the owner of the house hmm. how that guy isn't like filthy rich i don't know because this house is like unbelievable 
Well, nobody wants to go in the house. So you can't, like, sell it. A haunted house? Who would want to buy a haunted house? I don't know. Vincent Price, maybe? Well, he's renting it, but... Yeah. Anyway, so he's... He keeps... The drunk keeps telling everybody, like, it's haunted. It's filled with ghosts. People have been murdered here. And, uh... We see ghosts. Through the eyes of... Nora. Nora. That's right. That's her name. And Nora Manning. The so then we and so there's a question of like okay are these actual real ghosts or are is it something else are these other people in the uh, in the house just out to scare her or is she just seeing things is she hysterical? Um, in the end, we find out that this was all that Trent and Annabelle were purposely terrorizing her to try to drive her to the point where she thinks that uh, Vincent Price is trying to kill her so that she will in turn kill him for them. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, real world plan sucks. Never going to (laughs) work. You can't like, you know, arrange all those pieces perfectly. But movie world is like, it's a, you know, it works for them. I mean, to an extent. They get Nora to shoot him. Yeah. And then what happens is the part that I don't understand. Because if your plan is to get somebody else to mistakenly kill somebody for you, logically, you wouldn't want to tamper with that body. Yeah. Or touch any evidence. Because the body being there is all the evidence that you need that he's dead and that it was shot by this girl Nora and she's claiming that she did it, you know, and she's sorry about it and all this kind of stuff. Cut and dry for the police to come in. But as soon as she, as soon as uh, she shoots him, then Trent comes out of the shadows and starts, he, he picks up, uh, you know, Vincent Price's gun and like tosses that over into the vat of, into the vat of acid and then takes his body and like drags it over to the, to the acid. I'm like, why do you want to dispose of the body? It makes no sense. Maybe he had his own thing going on where he wasn't really on Annabelle's side. So he was... Like, I don't know. That's the only way I can make sense So then he was going to frame the murder on her. Or just if he got rid of that body, then I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Because, like, the bones would still exist, and they could identify him by those, so it wouldn't be like, oh, she doesn't get her inheritance because he just disappeared, he didn't die, and, like... But, I mean, (laughs) by me saying, like, Tim, it doesn't make sense, why does this plot not make sense, (laughs) is kind of uh, a moot point. Like, I want it to make sense, because this is a movie that I watched so many times growing up, and I love this movie, and, like, no, definitely every time I watch it, there's, like, one more thing where I'm like... Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Why? How? Wh- what? Like. Yeah. Well, because, okay. So we find out that like all of these ghost sightings that we've been seeing are all the machinations of Trent and Nora. No, we never find that out. Well, we're led to believe <laughs> that. But then there are things that happen where that are clearly like, okay, did they set that up? The blood in the ceiling? The blood I in the ceiling. I feel like yeah. that's just. That's, that's actually a legitimate ghost. Yeah. And, um. 
and when Nora appears outside, or no, when when uh, Annabelle appears outside of Nora's window. Like there is a reference later when Trent is talking to Annabelle, like something like, "Oh, when you appeared outside the window, that really drove her over the edge," or something like that. So like that was clearly set up, but that had to have been some sort of projection thing because they establish early on and repeatedly that there's no way to get on the other side of those windows. Yeah. So there's something out there that they can like just project an image of her onto. But the rope. Yeah, the rope. I don't know if Trent or Annabelle knew anything about that rope coming in through the window and coiling around Nora's legs. That might I like to think this is how I've always viewed the film, from when I was a very small child to now. That the house is actually haunted. Trent, Annabelle, Frederick Lauren, they don't believe it's haunted. They're doing their own things to freak people out and double cross and whatever um but like there's things that those characters don't see or know about that are still happening and like when the movie ends there's i'm not exactly sure of the timeline i don't know how many more hours until daylight but i feel like there could be another movie now where the characters that are still alive have to deal with these other real ghosts right because there's like maybe like two or three hours left before yeah eight o'clock when the when the groundskeepers come back because it's a 75 minute movie they establish that the doors are going to be locked promptly at 12 they end up locking a few minutes early um but that's like about the halfway point of the film yeah so everything else could take place like you know before like 3 a.m or something and well at some point they say there's four hours left okay and I don't remember when exactly that is. Me either. But they definitely... It's towards the end. But, yeah, so there could be, like, you know, some time left where it's like, oh, well, we've all figured out figured that out, you know? The, the, the killers are... Well, I mean... <laughs> Trent and Annabelle are killed. Yeah. By Frederick Lauren. Right. They have fallen in this vat of acid, which I mean, and and then you know Vincent Price is just like, well, I'm ready for the authorities to you know, yeah. To declare my innocence because I guess technically he was protecting himself. Well, Trent was trying to throw him in the acid. That that could be self defense. Him, yeah, doing that. Annabelle. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, so her death, that's actually a huge part of this movie, as far, I mean, the, like, the legacy of this movie. Right. Um, wait, what's, the, what's the gimmick called? Emerjo. Emerjo. Which, if you went to see this movie in the theaters back in the 50s, um, if you went, if you got to go to, like, I guess one of your nicer theaters... There would be a little box next to the screen. Um, and then at the point in the film in which a skeleton uh, levitates from a vat of acid, uh, a, skele- a live skeleton in the theater would levitate um, from the box by the screen, and then it would just kind of like hang over the audience. And <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know how it ended. If it just went back in the box afterwards, or if it went all the way back to the theater and the projectionist kind of grabbed it or something, or. But like, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, what tended to happen was excited children in the audience would start throwing their popcorn and candy and shit at it, and it often get just get stuck and hang there for the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, the kind of thing. I mean, man, can you imagine that sort of thing happening today? I mean, it wouldn't be widespread, but I mean, can you imagine, I would love it. I would fucking yeah, love it. Can that you imagine part. going to like Regal or AMC or Cinemark or Bowtie or one of these major theater chains? going to see like it yeah like it for instance yeah and it's like it's presented in a merjo where like pennywise is going to come out of the screen and they would hire somebody to be in a clown suit yeah. and every time pennywise like jumped out or something there'd just be this creepy clown running around the front of the theater <laughs> but seems like dangerous <laughs> but i mean that seems more doable than like okay we're gonna set up this whole like we're gonna rig these wires to the ceiling where like you know we can have this skeleton float above the the the, the seats like that is just so impractical yeah what but what's cool is like <laughs> if you go on youtube and search house on Han hill emerge there are screenings that happen today in modern day uh modern times <laughs> Uh, you know specialty screenings of the movie where theaters have done a similar gimmick where they've recreated the emergeo. Okay. And uh, yeah, I went on I went on uh, YouTube and and saw a couple. Uh, and it looks like they they're in you know more. The movie's being projected in a sort of like theater, uh, not <laughs> in like a a play uh, theater. Like the like the wood theater. Yeah. How would you say? How would you differentiate that type of theater from a movie? It's not a movie theater. It's a it's a play. It's a theater theater. It's a theater theater. It's a. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've seen the, I've seen two videos of it, and the skeleton comes out in different parts, where like in one of them, it it, it the skeleton came out from behind like the curtain because it's you know it's on a on the stage there's the curtains and it sort of like came out with the spotlight on it um right when the uh when it comes rising out of the acid in the movie Mm. in another one that i watched it came out after because in the movie the skeleton pushes annabelle into the vat of acid Sure it does. As it slowly, slowly inches its way towards Annabelle, and I she mean, just stands there, right in front of the acid, just screaming, 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 as this thing slowly inches its way towards her, and then reaches out its hand, and like, oh, it's going to touch her, it's going to touch her, and oh, it touched her, and she fell in, oh no! It lightly taps her on the shoulder, and she jumps right into the valley. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there's this shot right after she falls in, where it's kind of slowly panning across the room. Yeah. And the skeleton's not in the shot. It just pans around like we're kind of like, we don't really know what we're looking at anymore. We're just sort of absently meandering around the room. And uh, in one of the, the screenings that I saw, that's when the skeleton came out. And so the skeleton came out and it was in front of that shot where there's nothing, where the skeleton's not on it. 
So the skeleton is like has emerged and it comes over closer and closer to the audience. And then just as it is about to come to the audience, you see in the in the shadows, Vincent Price emerges holding his marionette fishing pole contraption. And you realize that he's been in control of the skeleton the whole time. And I thought that was a cool place to do it because it actually feels like, you know, oh, the skeleton has popped off the screen. Yeah. That's cool. And it is like, there are a few moments like that where the camera just kind of pans around a room and they go on for a very long time. So that is a good place to throw in like, oh, it's doing that because there should be a skeleton dangling for the screen. Yeah. And what's funny is, um, you know, when you're just watching the movie uh, Sans Emerjo, <laughs> just at home, you know, if, if, if you get an Emerjo experience at home, then, uh, you know, you're, I don't know what happened but you might be living in a house on haunted hill um but yeah when you're just watching the movie uh at home when the skeleton emerges and you can clearly see the strings coming off of you know hanging from it yeah uh at first your mind is like oh you know that's just old technology it's just cheap but then it's revealed that Vincent Price is actually holding it by rope and and string. So then you're like, oh, it's actually part of the movie. Yeah. So we were in the middle of a thought, and then I started talking about Emerjo. And then, well, then we started talking about Emerjo. But the reason we were talking about that was because we were saying about how, like, at the end of the movie, um, Trent and Annabelle are dead, and, like, he's ready to see justice and everything. Um, I feel like, were you in the middle of a thought when I threw that out there? Probably. Yeah. Okay. I, I do remember we jumped over to Emerjo <laughs> and then got sidetracked, but I can't remember what, uh, what we were on. But, right. um... Cause I had a thought connected to that, which is all right. Even if the house is not actually haunted, which it's haunted. Um, so these four people, plus Frederick Lauren, they have to just, like, hang out for the next few hours. Yeah, awkwardly sitting in the living room. And it's, <laughs> and like, it's like, uh... What do you say? Like, it's like, oh, sorry, your wife and her lover <laughs> is dead. And you'll just be like, oh, it's all good. Like, Yeah. <laughs> and then that's when all the lights go out. And suddenly the real ghosts come. And it turns into a fucking, you know, bloodbath. Yeah. What do you think of the house? Did you recognize the house? Or at least the exteriors? No, I did. Well, I recognized it as the house from this movie. Um, but it's a really interesting looking... It's surprising because when you think about like, oh, it's a haunted house movie with ghosts and it's the house on Haunted Hill. Naturally, your mind goes to a traditional looking haunted house. A house that might be in anybody's neighborhood. Just a big, dilapidated, you know, um, like the house in It, for instance. Yeah. Like, that's what you think of when you think of haunted house. In this movie, though, the house looks like it's so, like, modern looking. It's a Frank Lloyd Wright house. A Frank Lloyd? Oh, okay. So, it was like a, a modern... 
yeah house and they shot the interior separate from the exterior yeah so that so really like clashes like at the like you yeah. see the interiors and you're like that does not look like what would exist inside this house but it's been used uh i forget the name of the house but it's been used in like a million different movies the uh the ennis house um it was built in 1924 um you probably recognize it as club silencio from mulholland drive no kidding but it was also in um, Blade Runner, The Rocketeer, Predator 2. I'm just scanning through Wikipedia right now, by the way. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show. Yeah, a bunch of stuff. But it, it is cool because it's, it's an interesting choice for this movie because it's so different than what you, you'd expect. But it on the exterior, I mean, it looks like it could like it's designed almost like something about it looks like a mausoleum mm. um it looks like a maze just looking at it from the outside you're like i can't get a grip of like yeah. what how this house is laid out at all because the rooms are all uh seem so separate and jagged and on top of each other that uh you just i i, you're, I look at the exterior and i'm like i have no idea <laughs> what the interior layout is it's like i'm not even sure how to enter that building <laughs> Yeah, and I like how the, uh, the 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 people who show up for the party don't seem to know how to enter the building. Yeah, it's like the opening credits; they're like kind of milling about. Just like... the, yeah, just the outside, like trying to figure out, like, uh, <laughs> how do I get into this place? It's almost like none of them wants to step up and admit, like, I don't know how to go in this door. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all just waiting for somebody else to go first. Oh, uh, one other thing I just want to say about that is, uh, it was also where the. Uh, television soap opera invitation to love was shot invitation to love yeah which is not a real soap opera but on twin peaks it was a soap opera and i guess they shot some of it at the uh, at this house so that's awesome i i did not know that and that's another uh and drive twin peaks connection right there that's pretty cool um yeah speaking of the opening credits how amazing is the beginning of this movie yeah, you know, I mean, part of the reason why this movie works so well the way that it does has everything to do with the presentation. Mm. Because really, I mean, it's like the story is like it's pretty standard. Yeah. It's the the, the effects are really nothing special to look at at all. Um yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you think of it, I mean, it's just like, okay, like, oh, that rope certainly curled around that girl's leg. It's a decent severed head. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, nothing atypical or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the cast is, is uh, charming enough. I mean, some of the characters kind of are a little ho-hum. Vincent Price is great. Yeah. I Annabelle like... is great. Yeah. Um. But what really ties it all together is the way that it's presented. And, of course, that's fitting for a director like William Castle, who was all about the presentation. Um, yeah, I mean, just the way that it starts with this disembodied head coming, like, screaming towards the towards the screen. Well, it, it starts and it's just, like, under... It's just sound effects under yeah. just over black for, like, a good little while. Which, um scared the hell out of my cat the other night which is weird because like i watch all sorts of weird stuff 
and like on my TV and my cat's around and she hears things. But like for some reason, the screaming ghosts at the beginning of House on Haunted Hill, she like jumped and ran across the room. Because she knows she because cats know what ghosts sound like. Yeah, and that's a real ghost. It's authentic ghosts. Yeah. But yeah, you've got like there's like these chains and like oh and like screaming. Yeah, I mean it's the kind like, of thing that like you would get in the store of like you know on a CD that's yeah. like Halloween haunted house sounds, you know. And then you've got Elijah Cook Jr.'s face coming at you. Um. Who. Now I know from things like the Maltese Falcon and Howard Hawks is the big sleep, but growing up I knew him from Blackula. <laughs> and like, and also like I didn't know about this growing up, but like later I saw like um, the uh, the Night Stalker, Messiah of Evil. Like he was in just a bunch of like seventies horror movies. Oh, and Rosemary's Baby in '68. I think he's a small part in that. Um. But I don't know. I've always, he's one of those actors that kind of like, you know, he has his shtick and he sticks mm-hmm. to it and he's just kind of like, you see Elijah Cook come on screen and you're like, okay, this guy's going to be kind of like wimpy and just whiny. Yeah, the simpering kind <laughs> yeah. of. Yeah. And in this, he's an alcoholic and he, uh, he drinks a lot in this movie <laughs> and I'm surprised he's still awake at the end. But, um, I mean, that's rule number one. Don't fall asleep in the haunted house. Yeah. They keep separating, which is odd. I feel like, oh, well, we all have to stay awake till morning. Let's just hang just, out in the living yeah, room. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I, that's that's where my mind goes. I'm just like, <laughs> you know, because then when they, when they come up with their brilliant plan of like, you know, we're going to find out who the, you know, the murderer is and everything. They're like, okay, what we're going to do is we're all going to split up into our own separate rooms. And if anyone leaves their room, we'll know that they're the killer. And then immediately everybody just leaves their rooms and nobody says anything about like, yeah. Hey, what are you doing out of your room? <laughs> um, to me, it just makes more sense that like, yeah, just all stay in the living room where you can keep an eye on everybody. It's nice and brightly lit. And there's, you know, alcohol and good times, but no, you know, you got to split up yeah. in the haunted house. But yeah. So after Elijah Cook's head appears and he talks about, the house um he goes away and then we got vincent price's head coming at you um and he sets up the game like the the whole party thing and uh and then he introduces one by one the characters as they're arriving in their separate cars which are hearses are they each in hearses or is this a hearse leading them oh is that okay because i was looking at the cars that they're in and I was like, they don't really look like hearses. But I was like, maybe these are like old 50s looking hearses. I think there was a hearse in the front. And then because I think that was one of the time he said like, oh, that the hearse was my wife's idea. She's yeah. so amusing. Yeah. Um, and then each character has their own separate car and he introduces them and gives them like a character trait. <laughs> <laughs> it's a. Uh screenwriting 101 right? yeah he's given all the character breakdowns you know <laughs> um and it works though yeah it's like great. it seems like oh well he's doing this just to like i don't know it's it's a quick way to convey information we immediately like know everyone and have our suspicions about each of them in certain ways like 
and everything and then it's like we go into the they arrive at this just weird looking house and like you said before the credits are going and they're all just kind of there's these just cool interesting shots of them all just kind of milling about as Mm. you say so it's like everything leading up to when they finally get in the house you're just so ready for it you're like this is going to be awesome and uh it's fun after that but it never really like matches the uh i don't know like the the presentation level of the beginning i I feel like what did you think of um carolyn craig the actress playing nora she has an interesting kind of like almost a like a, a devilish kind of look to her in the way that like her eyebrows are i think yeah she oh she has like i don't know something about her i look at her and i'm like she there seems like there's some kind of like evil nature to her going on um i mean her role is essentially um it's a lot of screaming and uh acting hysterical as trent says yeah um So she doesn't really have a whole lot to do outside of that. I mean, she's paired up with, um, what's his name? Lance. <laughs> Lance. And he's kind of the, uh, you know. He's know. worthless. Yeah, he's Which this, really. That's one thing that I didn't even. do anything. Or so one of the options on, if you stream this on Amazon Prime, they have the Rift Tracks version. And Rift Tracks, it's like, you know, some of the people who did Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's, they're, you know, they're talking through the movie and they're making jokes about it and stuff and it's hit or miss um but what's weird is like when i watched that their jokes kind of pointed out some things that somehow watching this movie for decades i never really picked up on and that's exactly how worthless lance is <laughs> he does not do anything no in this movie. He, yeah there's nothing that he does that like motivates any scene or any like i mean he might be like oh i'm gonna do this <laughs> and he goes to try to do it, but never fulfills it. And at the end, he's, like, he's stuck in a wall, in, yeah. yeah. Like, this whole thing's happening where, like, Dr. Trent and Annabelle are, like, being killed in the basement and stuff. And then, like, it cuts to them trying to help him out of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes out, and his, like, head's been hurt again. And he's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, as far as <laughs> leading men go. He might uh, take the the mantle of worst from <laughs> David fucking Manners. I don't know, but yeah, I feel like um, his many attempts to impress Nora, which I feel, I feel like the whole movie is him being like, "Oh, I'm at this party. Oh, there's this one hot girl. Well, I'm yeah. gonna keep trying to impress her with my manliness." I don't think it really works. I'd like to think that after the movie ends, they just go their separate ways. Yeah, she's like, I, I'm, I'm never calling you back again. Like, I don't, want, I don't want to remember any of this. I'm only here for the money. Um. Yeah, I, I like uh, Nora in this movie more, more at least than um, you know, some of the reviews I was reading. Kind of. I don't know. People, I guess, don't think too highly of her performance. Uh, I, she, I think as far as like having to maintain a level of hysteria she i mean she's no like marilyn burns in texas chainsaw massacre but she for i don't know i think she acquits herself well and it really feels like i mean like for instance the scene where she sees norabelle out of the window and Annabelle. the rope or what did i say norabelle oh 
<laughs> I think I've I, I think earlier I said I've I've said Nora when I meant Annabelle for some reason. I don't know. But now I'm just combining them. But she sees Annabelle outside of the window yeah. and the rope comes out and wraps around her legs. I mean what her direction clearly is is just like stand exactly in this spot with your feet together, don't move, and just like look surprised for like a really long time and just scream as this rope slowly coils around. It's just like it's just obviously that's not how a human would react to that situation. No, not at all. But because of the way that like this the stage direction is and the screen direction, it's just like it has to be that way. In the same way that it's like Annabelle standing in front of the the vat of acid as this skeleton, you know, yeah, that's one <laughs> quote of the... unquote pushes her in. It's just like you can't really. It's hard to blame the actors in that scenario because it's just like they're they're doing the best they can with what they got. And I'm glad that when it cuts to that awkward wide shot of the skeleton approaching Annabelle by the acid, um, I feel like it's good that we can't see the actress's face because I just imagine her being like seriously like this is how how am i supposed to react to this like, the, yeah, like this ridiculous looking skeleton that can barely move like that i wish that that shot i wish there'd been a little more like dynamic composition with it and there are a few other shots that should be a little uh a little i don't know um all right so I, i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about this one moment and it's uh, it's a it's a very big moment for me, because it's like watching it. Like you mentioned, uh, we were we talk when we were talking last week about how we were going to be doing House on Haunted Hill. You mentioned that it wasn't really uh, scary. I think, oh, did um, I? or you said something like that, and I disagreed with you. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm I'm remembering that we had a thing at the last of the episode, yeah. at the end of the episode, and we're like, oh well, we'll talk about that next time, and yeah. then I can't remember what it was. Well, it's I don't care how old I get there's always going to be this one moment where I still kind of tense up when I know it's coming. Okay. I know what you're talking about because I, yeah, I made a note of it because really there's one scare in this movie that is the most effective in the whole thing. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because it's ridiculous, but it's so great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really well and it's well done. And it's like, it is genuinely, you know, spooky and frightening. And I assume we're talking about, talking about the same moment where, <laughs> Nora is uh, down on her knees, knocking on the wall. Yeah, and she, because uh, Lance is on the other side, like, okay, now I'm gonna knock over here, and like he's trying to figure out if there's a another room in between the rooms. <laughs> yeah, like a passageway. And then Nora stands up and turns around, and right behind her is the uh, the old woman, the old blind woman. Yeah, who we don't we saw her earlier. Yeah. Um. From she, a distance. Yeah, she emerged from shadows and, like, rolled back into the shadows when Nora was screaming. But this is, like, just this... Nora just, like, backs up into, like, a close-up. Like, a two-shot with this old woman. And then we get a close-up of the woman by herself. And it's, frankly, terrifying. Yeah, it really I is. I mean, <laughs> the makeup is just... And you, you, you see it for just a, uh, just long enough to get an impression in your mind. And, uh... Yeah, the makeup is great. Her and she's just frozen in this yeah. like pose of like, uh, you know, with burying her teeth and her and her fingers up, and uh, and then she just like and then you cut to the wide shot yeah. and she just glides away, just frozen in that moment. And it's like, oh, I wish we hadn't cut to that. Like, I, it's just such a weird. 
because it's a great shock moment. And then you've got this wide shot of the old lady on roller skates just <laughs> rolling away across the screen. But I, like, I like ah. that shot because it's just because it's just I like it because it's fun, but it's we. It, I feel like you lose some like fear you could have kept. I mm-hmm. think I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Like if Nora just ran out of the room after that close up, and we're it's kind of just like oh she's in there. Yeah. But I I don't know I like the uh... or if a t- or maybe a tighter shot of like Nora watching her roll away out the door. It just it just seems like we see too much of her body as she's rolling. It feels like it's framed just wide enough so that you don't so you're just cutting out whatever dolly she's standing on you know like it's just like it's because it is really wide and it's kind of weird um but i I think part of me liked that shot because it was just unexpected to be like whoa we're like this wide and she's just like frozen stiff as somebody pulls her on this just one of those uh, skateboard just one of those roller skating blind ladies you know like you you see She's even named Mrs. Slides, right? Oh, really? Because the caretaker's name is Jonas Slides. Oh, I didn't notice. And and I'm assuming that's in the end credits. Well, they say when um, when we see her with her husband. I like that shot, too. Yeah, that's weird. Because um, we see him earlier when he like grabs Nora uh, in that part of the wall that Lance ends up getting stuck in later in the movie. Uh, like He reaches around and grabs her. And, <laughs> and is like, hey if you want to live come with me or whatever yeah like he's gonna kill you come with us or something um and then a couple minutes later we see him standing with the blind lady they're both just kind of staring yeah it's it's awkward and they're far away like you you know you kind of have to like lean in to get a good look at him yeah and uh vincent price is like oh that's jonas slides and his wife and it's like i wonder if they just said slides because she's just sliding around the house and it was like a joke or something that makes sense um But I don't know. And I don't want to undercut like my love of like the moment before that awkward shot because that still fucking makes me jump. Because like things that scared you when you were a little kid. Mm-hmm. You'll always, yeah, tense up for. Yeah. Like there's a movie called The Peanut Butter Solution that I, uh, I haven't rewatched in a very long time. And I'm very, I'm very hesitant about it just because I remember being terrified as a kid. This is a good movie for kids. Like, I, if, if I had kids, I feel like I wouldn't hesitate to be like, oh, it's it's getting close to Halloween. Yeah. Put this on. Because it's like, it's just scary enough for, for I don't know, like, I think for any age you could watch this. Yeah. And um, it gives that good kind of wholesome uh, Halloween spirit spooky vibe even though i mean it is kind of about like you know i mean this married couple who are just like sort of in in a lover's quarrel where one of them is going to kill the other and the way that they talk uh but it's in a spooky house but it's in a spooky house with skeletons and things and there's there's guns and little coffin boxes and there's this little fun stuff in it i don't know yeah there's nothing like too scary for a kid to handle yeah just scary enough just scary enough yeah because it's healthy to scare your kids 
Yeah, scare your kids. Yeah. Um, I wish I could remember just how old I was when I saw this for the first time. I know that it was on a tape. Like, I taped it off TV, and the other movie... One of the other movies on the tape was uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Which I feel like that is one that if I had a kid, I would hold off. Yeah, you a hold few off. Years. On, you hold off on the thing, yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the other movie on the tape was Teen Wolf Two, which that's not that great of a movie. I never saw Teen Wolf Two. I grew up watching Teen Wolf all the time, though. See, I saw Teen Wolf like maybe once or twice when I was a kid, but Teen Wolf Two I watched all the time because Jason Jason Bateman was like the coolest guy in the '80s, and then again like 20 years later. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny that in the end credits, yeah, the skeleton is is credited as himself <laughs> because to William Castle, I feel like that skeleton is as much a star as vincent price is yeah um because he always had his gimmicks and i mean there's certain people who are like oh vincent price is in this movie let's go see this movie and then you know if you're not pulled in by vincent price's name then you're pulled in by "Ooh, what's emerjo let's yeah. go see what emerjo is yeah and percepto and uh all the various other ones illusiono the first one was for Macabre, where he had the uh, the insurance, where um, anybody who died of fright during the movie, you know, they could get the insurance or something. Their their loved ones would get insurance. Well, yes, they, they wouldn't get. That feels like the recipe for like just an awful kind of murder scheme well they did say like, like come on honey like yeah. you're like if you're in a relationship much like uh vincent price and, and his lovely wife yeah and you're like i'm gonna i'm gonna get rid of my wife and there's this guy out there saying like come see my movie if you die of fright you, you you'll get a payout of insurance so you poison their popcorn while you're watching uh you know macabre i feel like william castle they would probably... die in the theater well, it was through Lloyd's of London, I think, was the company that he insured through. I'm pretty sure they would do an autopsy. Yeah, probably. But, like, you got to use the right kind of... Uh, oh, okay. You know, if there's the poison that, like, I don't know, stops your heart or whatever, and it's like, oh, and it's like, I'm afraid she died of fright. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get some of that, uh, that macabre money. Yeah. So he did Macabre, and he had his gimmick of, you know... That was more of an advertising gimmick than anything. Yeah, and then House on Haunted Hill was his next movie after that. And for that, he decided to go theatrical with this skeleton coming out of the of the, of the screen and flying above the audience. And that seemed to do really well for him. What was his next movie that he uh, he did? That would be The Tingler. That Yes, The Tingler. And that one probably has, I would guess probably the most effective uh usage I, of uh of this gimmick idea i would be afraid to go to a theater with uh the tingler like that had like the full gimmick i'm not sure what the, if that one was percepto is that what that one was called i'm not sure um i feel like i would end up like peeing or something because they had the buzzers on the seats and there's a certain point in the film Alright, so the movie's about um, 
you know, they, they find out that um, there's, it's ridiculous. There's like this. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they like slugs or something? I'm, I've never seen the Tingler, but isn't it like, uh, my understanding is like, there are these like creatures, these slugs or something, these like insectoid looking like parasites. Yeah, little yeah. parasites that are these Tinglers that like can take over your body or whatever. Yeah, they grow on your spine and um, they live on fear. But, you know, if you're really afraid, you scream, and the scream keeps the tingler in check. But if you keep somebody from screaming, the tingler <laughs> grows and grows. Um, like, there's a scene where Vincent Price uh, is experimenting on himself. He injects LSD into himself. It was the first time a Hollywood film ever had LSD in it. And it's in the tingler. Vincent Price is the first person to ever trip on film. I mean, he's acting. Oh, still. I was going to say, holy crap. Did he, yeah, he no. actually, I don't, that would be amazing. <laughs> he might have. I don't know. Cary Grant did. That was back when it was legal, though, and you could get it from your psychiatrist. But anyway, <laughs> tangent. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's like trying to you know, scare himself, but he ends up screaming and he's like, oh, how can I keep people from screaming? And then he meets this, there's this guy who runs a silent movie theater and his wife is a mute. <laughs> And, uh, just, I don't think I have to say any more about that. But anyway, um, so there's a tingler that grows, like, very large, and it gets away from its, like, host body. And it, it goes into, uh, like, from, like, the apartment upstairs that they own into their silent movie theater. And it goes into, like, the projection booth. And then, like, it's like the screen goes blank. Right, and then there's like a voice yeah, that's it's like, like, "Ladies and gentlemen, in this theater, the tingler is loose." Yeah, and like you see the tingler, like up, like the shadow of the tingler up on the screen, as if it's gotten like in front of the projector and stuff. And uh, you know, Vincent Price is like, "Scream, scream for your lives!" And then at this point, there are several, depending on where you were, John Waters would talk about when he went to see it. Um, in like a rundown theater there's only like one or two but there were buzzers on the seats and every when you if you got buzzed it was like the tingler was getting you and you had to scream to make it stop um yeah i don't like i i that would freak even if i knew it was coming i would still just be so paranoid that like i'd get buzzed and wet my pants yeah i mean that that, <laughs> that alone if somebody tells you like you you know there are certain seats in this theater yeah. that like at a certain point you might get. It's, it, I'm assuming it's just like a vibrate, something vibrating. Yeah, it's like a joy buzzer, I imagine. Yeah. And um, yeah, John Waters would go to his theater early and check under all the seats to make sure that he would get buzzed. That's awesome. Yeah. But I think like just telling somebody like you might get buzzed, it would be enough to <laughs> let you'd be sitting wondering the whole the whole movie. Yeah. In anticipation of like. Is it, when is it going to happen? Is it going to happen to me? Like, am I going to get it? Um, you know, it's kind of sort of like a, I guess you could say it's, it's one way to build tension and suspense in a movie is to, you know, I'll threaten the audience with some sort of like physical, uh, you know, yeah, stimulus, but. Which, I mean, this isn't, I mean, The Tingler's a fun movie anyway. Like that definitely adds to it. Because even just watching it on TV, I obviously am not about to get buzzed, I know, but it's still great to see, like, Vincent Price come on and be like, scream, scream for your lives! Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But it would be cool if there was this like, or it, it wouldn't be cool. But I would think if I ever made a movie that was like, just it turned out so boring, and I was like, oh, this movie was supposed to be like suspenseful, and now it's just boring. All right, you know what? I'm gonna put a thing in the very first scene that says, at some point, one of you people in the theater is going to get shot in the face or something, and then the whole time everybody in the theater would be like. Is it going to be me? Am I going to get shot or something? Yeah, I mean, you, there, there's legal implications to that, I guess. So maybe I wouldn't say that, but something. Yeah, you, you got to like... Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, just like plant the idea that something is about to happen hmm. to you and it could it could affect you. So that, yeah, the, the, you distract the audience with this other thing so they're not paying attention to the how boring the movie really is. I haven't really seen many William Castle films. When I peruse his IMDb, I'm surprised because he has such a reputation for these, you know, schlocky kind of horror movies that have his gimmick attached to them. Yeah. But when you look at him, there's Macabre, there's House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, 13 Ghosts. Were there any others? Um, there's Mr. Sardonicus. Which I think that was the one where, um, at the end of the movie, the movie would st- stop at a certain point when they like figure out who the killer or they catch the killer or something like that, and it would stop and um, they would say like, "All right, now you get to vote if the killer lives or dies," and they never shot two endings. I guess they only shot one where the, the killer dies, but. I haven't seen that one. How would how would the audience vote? Like you yell it out? I think you like had to fill something out. Like maybe at that point somebody came in the theater and like they took cards. It seems complicated. It's it's yeah, nothing any theater would do now. Just, yeah. just because of like oh I gotta get someone to go in there and um and there was straight jacket. I don't remember the gimmick for straight jacket, but that's um the one where I've seen the clip of joan crawford going crazy with an axe (laughs) but what i was getting at is like so he has this reputation for those movies but it pre-1958 which is when macabre came out he had been working as a director for a long time yeah and he has a lot of movies that don't look like horror movies they're like look seems like a lot of westerns and uh maybe like gangster movies and stuff yeah and he did um the Whistler series at Columbia, which uh, I really know nothing about, but that's like a thing he was known for before these. He was just a, a working director. He somehow got an, I think, an associate producer credit on the Lady from Shanghai, the Orson Welles film. Hmm, I'm not yeah. sure how. I don't know what he had to do with it, but I mean, he was at Columbia, and that's a Columbia film. So, one of the other films that I have seen that he directed was The Busybody, which is like a like late 60s comedy with Sid Caesar where it's weird all right so this guy he keeps ending up in situations where there's just like these dead bodies that he's trying to get rid of this is, I'm not remembering it well <laughs> um but the bodies when they could have just had actors playing dead instead they went with just mannequins 
and not even like dummies made up well to look like people. These are just straight up like mannequins with like that painted they just, on faces. They just and, like, went to the department store and were like, we'll take those mannequins. It seems like it. They almost look like uh, like Charlie McCarthy or something like like dummies. But it's just, I feel like it really took me out of the movie. And it was weird to think like, oh, this is a guy who just like a decade earlier was doing like House on Haunted Hill and like. I don't know. And then, a little after the busybody, he uh, he was supposed to direct Rosemary's Baby. Really? But can you imagine William Castle's <laughs> Rosemary's Baby? <laughs> he took a producer credit. Roman Polanski directed it, and it's a masterpiece. And um, that was something I guess he was bitter about. But I think he did acknowledge that it was better he's like well i i i wouldn't have made it like that but yeah yeah, i mean it is i I mean because that movie went on to get a lot of accolades and stuff yeah was it nominated for oscars or anything um not best picture i'm not sure if any of the actors or anyone i'm not sure um but certainly received at a level that i'm sure that his other previous horror work probably was never taken that seriously Mm. so yeah i mean it'd be it would be kind of interesting to be like i could see why why he might be a little bitter about that yeah and it is like i mean rosemary's baby is one of those movies like it came out in 1968 and it was around the same time as night of the living dead and targets um and you know leading up to like the exorcist and stuff where there's just like these like pretty heavy serious horror films and it's sort of like the antithesis of like the typical William Castle style. He's like yeah. what I think like, you know, when it gets to be Halloween time and people are like, Oh, let's watch some like Halloween movies, like some scary movies, like I usually go for the more like fun ones. Yeah, you don't go for like Rosemary's Baby, which is Which is still kinda of fun, but it's got like the very heavy themes and it's like Yeah. Yeah. Very It works terrible. as a drama. Yeah. As well as a horror film because it's, it is it's very suspenseful and everything um whereas you know the drama of something like house on haunted hill is not you know I mean, you can throw on house on haunted hill any party in the in any halloween party in the world yeah. and it just it works you know and such a huge part of that is uh something we haven't i feel like we haven't talked enough about which is vincent price yes yes how did you first uh, become aware of Vincent Price? Are you petting your phone? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shh, it's okay. How did you first uh, become aware of Vincent Price? What What did you um, know him from? I think, man, if I if I think back, I probably first became aware of him through Thriller. Okay. And Edward Scissorhands. And he was a host on uh, some, like, sort of, I don't know if it was, like, PBS, like, horror kind of, like... Oh, Mystery. Mystery. Was he a host on Mystery? With the Edward Gorey opening credits that scared you as a child? Okay, so... Oh, that was that show. No kidding. Okay. Because I I remembered him being on, like, one of those shows. I didn't realize it was Mystery, though. That makes sense now. Okay. Yeah, so that's where I became aware of him. Did you see The Great Mouse Detective as a child? 
that was like a like a one time rental kind of deal. Oh, so okay. I did, but it you know it's not one of the, my go to childhood ones. I haven't seen it since you know I was probably six years right. old or something. I never saw it until like just a few years ago. But I get I know a lot of people who like they knew him from that. Really, like, I didn't it, even know he was in it. Yeah, he was Radigan, the villain in it. Huh. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure what. I knew him from originally. I definitely was aware of Thriller and Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. And um, I think mostly he was like, I would think of him as like the creepy guy on the Brady Bunch who kidnapped the the boys. <laughs> I didn't see that episode. Yeah. And he, he like has them tied up in the cave. Because um, they, uh, oh, what is it? it's when they go to Hawaii. It was like a two part episode. Brady Bunch goes to Hawaii. Yeah. And, and um, the boys get kidnapped by a creepy old man. Well, they find this, like, uh, this, like, weird, like, tiki charm thing. Uh, it turns out to be bad luck. And um, they're, like, they meet this, like, Hawaiian guy who says, like, oh, you should return it to where it belongs. And so they go out into the woods to find this cave with, like, this temple it should go to. And Vincent Price is, like, this crazy archaeologist. Who like comes out with a spear and he like takes them prisoner. <laughs> you you do not watch a lot of Brady Bunch grow up. Um, no, not really. <laughs> I, I, no, because um, that was on like what when I was growing up, it would have been on like Nick at Night or something. But yeah. I didn't have like cable for a long time oh, okay. growing up until I was like older. So I so, so I, I like caught I would catch episodes like if I was at my grandmother's house or something mm-hmm. and they and you know she had like. It would be like, oh, we can watch Nick at Night and watch, catch like you know an episode of like The Monsters or Brady Bunch and stuff. That was the only time that I ever saw those shows. And also, I would see he. I'm not even sure what his IMDb credits are, but like he was on like every TV show at some point in like the 60s and 70s, and um, you know he was Egghead on Batman, Batman in yep. the 60s, and um, he hosted The Muppet Show. Yep. And uh, I would just know him as just, like... He's just that guy that pops up around. And... Yeah, like, I wouldn't even think of him as, like, oh, he's in those movies. I would just think, like, that's Vincent Price. He's he's, he's sort of like a, like a spokesman for horror. Yeah. You know, he's just, like, the face of, like, everything macabre and, mm. and dark. And I, get, and, I mean, so much of it has to do with, I mean his voice his voice yeah. is just fantastic and it's so weird he's from uh missouri and really it's like, i always figured that he was like english or something. yeah like it has like like you can pick up on a little bit of a southern accent from time to time in like certain things but like he's so regal yeah and you know so theatrical and like you know he does have like this sort of like British thing to him. He did. He went to college in in England, but no, he's a Missouri boy. That's surprising. <laughs> yeah, I never uh, never would have guessed. Yeah, um, I'm not. Sh- I really wish I could remember like what I had seen of him before he died, but I do remember. Um, so within a few months of each other, uh, Joe Dorita, Curly Joe, the last stooge died 
1993. Uh, I think it was like July. And then in October of that same year, um, Vincent Price died. And so I was a little kid. <laughs> but I remember crying about both of them. <laughs> Because I loved the Three Stooges. When I was little, like, I watched all the Three Stooges stuff. I had, like, this book, the Three Stooges Encyclopedia, and I would read, like, over and over, and I knew their whole history and everything. And then it was weird, like, oh, this, it's over now. The last one is dead, even though there hadn't been any Three Stooges anything since the late 60s. Um, and then, like, a few months later, Vincent Price died, and it was like, even though I was a little kid, it was like, oh, my childhood is ending. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's the day that Tim became a man. <laughs> October twenty fifth, nineteen ninety three. <laughs> Tim became a man. But it was it was weird because like, I honestly don't. Rem- I must have seen. I don't know. I don't know if I. It's very possible that I saw how. You know what? No, I had seen House on Haunted Hill at that point because I was at. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> I remember where I was living at the time. And when I moved, so, yeah. But it is funny, just based um, on, like, that movie, you're like, that guy from that movie is dead? Yeah, but I knew him from other stuff, because... <laughs> There's no point to living anymore. Because <laughs> in House on Haunted Hill, I was like, oh, this is Vincent Price. Uh, cause, so you and were aware like, of him, but never, but was like, that, you know... Yeah. And then, like, right... It was, I think it... People were actually, like, annoyed with this at the time. It was, like, less than a week later the A&E biography aired. And I guess people were like, oh, they're just taking... They're just exploiting his death and stuff. And it's like, well, do you have any idea how long it takes to put something like that together? They, It was done before he died. But it's actually... The one that's available now um, is a different version. Like, the one that aired in 1993 actually focused more on his horror work. But the one that's available as like a special feature on the DVD for the movie Laura, um, and it's last I checked it was on YouTube. It's from a few years later, and it focuses more on like his career as a whole and like a lot on his uh, time as a as a Fox contract player because biography is I think I believe run by Fox, which oh. is why their special features on a lot of the Fox DVDs. Um, but yeah, and like, so I'd seen some of his stuff, and then he died, and then I saw the biography, and then after that, it was like, I need to see all of his stuff. And there's too much stuff, so I have yeah, not Yeah, he's in like, seen, yeah. like, so many movies, it's crazy. Because like you said, he's just one of those guys who like, can pop up anywhere and everywhere, and yeah. it's like, he just is like, I don't know. And it's weird, his, uh, this is a weird point in his career, that when he did House on Haunted Hill. So he started out, uh, he made a few movies at Universal. He did uh, Service Deluxe, like a, a screwball comedy. Uh, that was his first movie, 1938. And then after that, you know, he did Tower of London, The Invisible Man Returns. Uh, it looked like he was going to be one of the new horror guys, but that didn't really pan out at all. Uh, then he went over to 20th Century Fox. He did Laura, which is amazing it's one of my favorite movies um he's very southern in that the the accent definitely comes through in that one but he's playing this sort of like southern gigolo type guy um and he did a lot of like small roles in big movies at fox 
Uh, and then he did, in 1946, he did the movie Shock, which was an independent production but distributed by Fox. And that was his first, like, some sources listed as his first, like, leading horror role, which is weird because I would say The Invisible, Invisible Man, Man Returns. Returns yeah. but, um, but, but he, kind of, he wasn't top billed in that, I guess. But it was kind of the first one of his, like, real iconic this is the, this is the first movie where he's like clearly this villainous character who has plotting to kill his wife <laughs> and then after that he did dragon wick um which is like this gothic romantic thriller and he was like relatively successful for a few years um not like a top tier Hollywood star, but he was one of those character actors. Everybody basically knew who Vincent Price was. Um, and then the whole HUAC nonsense with the, uh, you know, communist witch hunts happened. And he was sort of, he, was, he wasn't blacklisted, he was gray listed. Where, you know, studios were told, like, it'd be wise not to hire this guy. Like, he wasn't a communist. What he actually was accused of was he was a, um, I think it was premature anti-Nazi. He was anti-Nazi before the United States said, we don't like Nazis. What? So... And that ties him in to the, being like in the thirties. Well, yeah, and because communists hated Nazis, right? You know, I mean, Hitler. So was okay, having them I see. Us. So it was like um, in the thirties. You know, the U.S. was trying to remain neutral, right? And there were a lot of people, often communists, who were like, "This Hitler guy is a bad guy, and we need to stop him." And Vincent Price uh, agreed. He didn't like Hitler, right? Which uh, you know. Unfortunately, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So then in later years, they're like, like... Yeah, you liked Hitler. I mean, you didn't like Hitler a little too much. Yeah. It's really weird to wrap your brain around it now. That is bizarre. Um, that is really bizarre. <laughs> so it did affect his career. I mean, he remained working not as consistently in uh, like the early 50s. Um, but... In 1953, he did make House of Wax. Right. And that's really, like, if you want to look at, like, the birth of, like, Vincent Price as a horror star. Yeah. Like, he'd been in horror movies before, he'd been in star movies before, but, like, that's just, like, that's another one I watched. That was probably one of the ones I watched before he died. I I, I saw that um, a couple years ago. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's awesome. He did not make much money off that at all. The movie itself made a ton of money for Warner Brothers. But, you know. Uh, and then he made, like, The Mad Magician, uh, which wasn't that big of a movie. It was a big success, but not for him, really. And then he was in uh, the DeMille film, The Ten Commandments. He had a small role uh, as a... Uh, an architect. I have not seen that movie. That's one of those movies I feel like I should have seen, even though not a lot of people are like running up and be like, "That's such a great movie." Right. <laughs> it's just one of those movies that you. Tim, Tim, like, have you seen the Ten Commandments? It's gonna change your fucking life. <laughs> uh, I just I think it'd be fun to watch someday. I don't know. Um, and then one day he was just like hanging out, uh, and William Castle came up to him like while he was eating lunch. Uh, I think it was at MGM. 
Um, and he had just been working on a show, which didn't really pan out, where he was going to be like the host of this show. And uh, they would do like little like mystery playlets within the show. And then afterwards, the audience uh, or the contestants would have to try to like remember certain things from the show they just watched. Hmm. And for this show, Vincent Price had grown this sort of devious mustache. And it was perfect timing because that's the mustache he has as Frederick Warren in House and on Haunted Hill. The With mustache little... that he has for yeah the rest of his career like the little like uh the little curl at the end of it and everything um so he was just like sitting having lunch with his mustache um and william castle came up and he talked long enough basically to get vincent price to finally be like okay yeah fine house on haunted hill let's see what happens and it, it william castle seems like that kind of guy where he's just like oh i have an idea for a movie I'm just going to keep talking until the movie gets made until people are finally like, all right, fine, we'll do it. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's how, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, uh, so you would say that like House on Haunted Hill did a lot to cement Vincent Price as, because Vincent Price is one of those guys who kind of like the man and like the name and the image of him are kind of separate. Like there is this sort of Vincent Price character. Yeah. Um, so like House on a Hill did a lot to kind of cement that the character of Vincent Price in the the minds of uh, of people. I would say so. Yeah. And he had just on the fly right before it, but he had a small role in that. But that was another big film. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot he was in the fly. And. Um, yeah, I would say, like, between House of Wax and House on Haunted Hill in the 50s, that's basically what's like, oh, Vincent Price, he's, like, a horror star. And I think, like, because, I, I don't know, so much of what I think about with Vincent Price is, like, him talking to the audience. Mm. Whether it is, you know, House on Haunted Hill or Michael Jackson's Thriller. It's like he's always, like, talking to you and, and like, getting you in the mood of, like, now we're going to go into the dark, you know scary things i think the peak of that like comes a little bit after this with when he starts uh making films of roger corman mm -hmm. at uh aip and that's just right i mean he does house on haunted hill and the tingler and, and then and those were like the raven and yeah in 1960 um he does house of usher with roger corman and then from that it leads into Pit and the Pendulum and Tales of Terror and The Raven and the Comedy of Terrors and Mask of the Red Death, Tomb of Ligeia. Yeah, that's like the, the Vincent Price era that I'm most familiar with. Yeah, me too. And then at the same time, like he's doing these these great horror films with Corman, he's really ramping up like his presence on television. And um, just like everybody knows who Vincent Price is at that time like i'd like to think now also but at that time like you're flipping these channels like he's just he's always there somewhere i feel like he's still got some public cachet i think so yeah i don't know i hope so yeah um i think it because it, it's interesting because you were kind of saying like um 
how in like the 40s he was maybe going to be like the next big horror star but it didn't really pan out mm. i think part of the reason is because he doesn't really have unlike somebody like bella Gosi or boris karloff or lon Chaney jr or whatever those guys have characters that they're identified with yeah like the characters became like synonymous with the man and Vincent Price didn't have that, like, super iconic role that he, like, embodied, you know? He had to grow into it. He be- Yeah, and like, he had to create his own Vincent Price yeah. character, the spokesman of horror, you know? And it's weird to think of, like, the characters he played in, like, the early 60s and stuff. You know, he couldn't have done that in, like, the early 40s at that age. Like, he's, like, a middle-aged horror star. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it works well for him. Actually, thinking about, like, his early work, um, so there's a scene in the in the Tower of London, the 1939 film, which, did you see that yet? I know you... Uh, no. Okay. No. You have that, though, right? It's you, in the Boris Karloff collection, yeah. Um, do you mind spoilers? Go for it. Okay. I mean, he's playing a real-life character anyway, so you should already know that the Duke of Gloucester is killed. <laughs> yeah, so I know all about... Uh, Richard III. And... Yeah, English uh, okay. history. Yes. I'm very, right. very well-versed. Yeah. So, I don't know why I just said Gloucester. Clarence. But anyway, so he's Clarence. Um... So you gotta do your research, Tim. Come on. I, I knew that. <laughs> Alright, so... Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff throw Vincent Price's character who's passed out drunk into a vat of Malmsey uh, wine and um, they throw him in this big vat and they close the lid and they have a few lines that they have to say before there's like a cut so when they're shooting it Vincent Price you know as a young actor you know he's he was game whatever you know they threw him in there and he had to like reach down and hold on to like a rail so that he wouldn't come up you know until they were ready to cut or whatever um and they had like throughout the day um basil rathbone and boris karloff and several crew members just like you know to joke with the new guy we're throwing like cigarette butts and just random crap in there that he had to like swim in mm-hmm. however long and i'm wondering if there was any sort of resentment on vincent price's part when doing house on haunted hill when Carol Omar as Annabelle goes in, there's a very obvious cut. Like as soon as she's underwater, there's a cut and it's like a jump cut because like we don't cut to anything. We're, we're still looking at the vat. It's just, Oh, clearly they cut. So she'd come right out, like right on up from the, the acid, which I'm assuming was just water. Yeah. With some sort of uh, bubbler. Down yeah. In there. Um, I wonder if he was just like back in my day, you had to go down and stay down. <laughs> I don't know. That was just a random thing I was thinking of the last this this last time watching it. So, I've got a question for you. Okay. If some older stately gentleman offered <laughs> you $10,000 to come to this remote location and be locked inside this strange house with a whole bunch of people that you've never met before for 
you know, 12 hour night or whatever. It's not even 12 hours that he's locked in. It's like eight hours or something that they're, yeah. they're locked in. Um, in this supposedly haunted mansion, 10,000 bucks now. Do you, do you accept that offer? Well, I can't think of any reason not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, you know, not the strange people, not the, not the hauntedness. You know, those aren't reasons not to do it. No, I mean, hey, maybe I'll meet uh, Nora or something like. You know. <laughs> you will be the Lance of. of this, you'll be the ineffectual Lance of, of your story, or you uh, keep trying to impress Nora. I'd be the Watson Pritchett. I'd be like, you guys have to believe me. There's ghosts everywhere. No, I, I, I don't know. It, it seems like um, it's easier than the characters in this film are making it seem. Oh, to stay, yeah, to stay. Yeah, in that it's place. like guys, guys, guys. Let's all just stay in this room. Oh, I kind of have to pee. Um, bathroom, buddy. Anyone just like pair off? Like, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. <laughs> to me, it's uh, yeah. It feels pretty easy to do. I would do it. Although, I mean, that that's for that specific house. I don't know what sort of nonsense the house in in your hypothetical scenario right because in my hypothetical scenario it's not vincent price it's not any of those characters it's not that house but it is ten thousand (laughs) bucks so i can walk in and i would think that like oh okay we're in the same room whatever and then all of a sudden like something like a wall shoots up from the floor and like oh now i'm in my own room or the chair revolves around and dumps me down a a hole into a dungeon or something like yeah or there's you know actual real ghosts who are uh you know haunting you well, maybe they're friendly ghosts. You think Casper's going to be in the house? Well, there's other friendly ghosts. <laughs> the, the 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 woman and the kid from Mr. Boogity. Maybe they're there. <laughs> I don't know why those are the first <laughs> friendly ghosts I could think of. Not like the Maitlands from Beetlejuice or something, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, they're friendly ghosts. Yeah, yeah from Beetlejuice. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to think of other other friendly ghosts. Dead man, he's a friendly ghost. Wait, what? A uh, comic book character. Oh, I can't, I'm thinking of the Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, Dead no, man. no, no, no. I'm like, not, not, uh, yeah, yeah, not, not the Jarmusch film. All right, I'm like, do you mean William Blake? Okay. Huh. Um. Yeah, the actress that played Nora Man and killed herself. Really. How how many years after House on Haunted Hill? I think like a little over ten. I think it was in the seventies. Did she hang um, herself? I don't know. Oh Can man! Can you imagine that? If every single character in the film, or every single actor who'd appeared in the film, had hanged themselves, that would be quite suspicious. Yeah. I had nowhere to go with that. I just, here's another random fact I know about somebody from House of Show. If you were Annabelle Lauren, you're married to Frederick Lauren, and like, yeah, he, you know, he probably killed his previous wives, but, you know, he's really rich and pretty witty. <laughs> um, would you want to leave him for, like, this, like, slightly older psychiatrist yeah i really uh, don't get that that yeah the uh the what's his name trent yeah i feel like 
she was not gonna, like she was just using him to like yeah. do this whole thing and then who's gonna ditch him yeah because yeah, she's just trying to get the money from from frederick mm-hmm. yeah i don't think that there is any kind of real romance there the scenes with uh with frederick and annabelle some of the best parts of the movie i think mm. they're a little back and forth exchanges does it remind you at all of like of like hitchcock type of uh of dialogue something about it reminds me of well it's it reminds me specifically of like shadow of a doubt um where it's sort of casually uh, talking about like how you would get away with the perfect murder how you would kill somebody oh like the father and the neighbor yeah in shadow okay I can see that, yeah. See, I thought you were going with, like, it's sort of got that, like, witty, sophisticated style that you would see in, like, some of the films he did with Cary Grant. But, but the, either way, it's that, Hitchcock that, that, that dark. <laughs> I, I was thinking, like, that dark humor. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just feels very Hitchcockian to me. Hmm. I think if it hadn't been for... Perhaps not this film, but at least like Macabre and some of the other films around that time, we might not have had Psycho. Hmm. Because like in hindsight, I feel like people often think like, oh, Psycho just came out of nowhere and changed everything. But then like if you look at like the historical context, it's like, well, Hitchcock saw that there were these like low budget black and white films coming out and making a ton of money. And, you know, Hitchcock was a great artist, but he liked money. He liked being a commercial artist. Um, so he was like, oh, if I spend a lot less than I did on, like, you know, he was just coming off North by Northwest at that point. Right, which is much, <laughs> much more extravagant than uh, something like Psycho. Yeah, and he's like, I just, you know, I'll just use, like, the crew I'm using for uh, my TV show. And, you know, we'll shoot black and white. And, um, oh, this William Castle guy, he's doing, like, gimmicks. All right, how about if I say nobody's allowed in the theater after the movie starts? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And like and then you got Psycho. Maybe he saw like William Castle kind of encroaching on his territory a little bit. Yeah, I would think so. And was like, you know, let me show you how it's done. That's right in the early 70s, I feel like that's where um frenzy comes from. I feel like that's Hitchcock seeing like Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And, like, other, like, early Jalo and being like, no, 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 no. Here's how you do it. I've never seen Frenzy. It's uh, very uh, Jalo-esque. Kayla and I have been on a slow quest to watch all of Hitchcock's films. Have you? I've asked you this. For some reason, it came up so many times in our older episodes. I haven't asked you in a long time. Have you seen I Confess yet? No. All right, so you're still 1953. Yeah, we're still. Yeah, it's been a while since we've uh, since we've picked it up, but I'd like to uh, continue on because. Well, I think at some point, maybe in a few weeks, maybe I confess would be a movie to watch. Yeah, for the show that'd be great because it's. I don't even know why it comes up or it came up a lot years ago. But, but... at this point, it's like if you've listened to all these episodes, <laughs> it's like we keep talking about I confess. Yeah, let's do it. 
Yeah, maybe we'll do that. And we haven't really, we haven't done any Hitchcock, uh, really. Wow, no. touched on any of that. So, and there's plenty to sink into there. But yeah, I, I you know because Hitchcock was. Hitchcock was in that same way that I was describing Vincent Price as sort of like a spokesman for horror. Like yeah. Hitchcock was very, you know, present. Like you said, he had his own show where he was introducing, you know, everything. He was a very well-known public figure. And I feel like William Castle was kind of like edging in on that a little bit of being like the, the great sort of, you know, horror showman. Yeah. And Hitchcock was like, no. Not yeah. in my house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my Hitchcock impression. No, not in my house. <laughs> um, yeah, I highly recommend the Joe Dante film Matinee, which I just is such a great film from like the early '90s, uh, where John Goodman plays this character who's blatantly based on William Castle, and he just he shows up in town with his new film Mant. Which he's, which he's premiering and it's got all these gimmicks where there's like a guy in like a half man half ant suit running around the aisles and he's rigging up the whole theater so it'll shake at certain points and um, it's just it's a great loving homage to uh, William Castle and his, his style yeah that's cool I'll have to check that out but um I think that'll wrap it up for this uh, discussion on House on Haunted Hill. So what are we watching next week? Well, next week, uh, we're going to get some, uh, we're going to get stupid. We're going to get earnest, scared stupid. I legitimately forgot (laughs) that we had agreed (laughs) to watch Earnest, Scared Stupid. Oh, do you want to rescind? No, I mean, yeah, (laughs) let's, uh, let's do it. Oh man, okay. Yeah, Ernest Scared Stupid. Boy, oh boy. Um, I have not seen it since I was a kid, but it was one that I looked forward to watching every year. It was We would always rent it from the store. Yeah, I would rent it from Stone's Pharmacy in Lake Lucerne on VHS. So, yeah, man, I mean... <laughs> er, er, well, <laughs> the Ernest Phenomenon... You know, a lot of uh, I, how how prevalent do you think Ernest is like in pop culture today? Are there younger people who are even aware of Ernest P. Worrell? I I don't know. I mean, because of the internet, everything is out there. Yeah. So they'll stumble upon it's all something, yeah. and it, like I don't even know what they would think if they saw just an image of him or just like a clip of him talking for a few seconds. Ew, like, yeah, they just. They just think, oh, here's a mentally challenged guy on the TV. Like, I don't know. Um, we'll, uh, we'll explore that before next episode. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. Next time.